Well, it can only go downhill from there. <laughs> I don't think it could get any better than it just was. I'm so glad to see you guys online. I'm so glad to see you. Actually, uh, we have hundreds of you online. We're just delighted that you decided to be with us. We had an awesome, awesome weekend with Lisa Turkhurst. I hope you enjoyed that. Had, uh, oh my goodness, had hundreds and hundreds of visitors. And uh, her presentation is just home run. I don't know anyone who's been, as I said, uh, Friday night, who's been through as many hurts and disappointments in life and still projects so much grace and strength and just joy all over her face. So if we get that out of her presentations, then, then we've done really, really well. I'm so glad you're here. It's a nice crowd here. And uh, I didn't say this at the first service because I don't want to irritate them. But, um, you know, the, the President of the United States of America and the CDC has now announced that if you're vaccinated, you can kiss, hug, smother each other in love. And I think we're just inches away from that big, wet, slobbery kiss that I know you've been waiting for. We're that close. <laughs> oh, me. Well, let's see how we get to the sermon now. <laughs> You know her as Mother Teresa or Teresa of Calcutta, who made this remark in her book, A Simple Path, quote, the greatest disease in the West, she's speaking about the U.S. and Western Europe, the greatest disease in the West today is not tuberculosis or leprosy. It is being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. We can cure physical diseases with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There are many in the world who are dying for a piece of bread, but there are many more dying for a little love. The poverty in the West is a different kind of poverty. And that's actually what Deuteronomy chapter 22 deals with. The fact that now so many of us in the United States of America and in what we might call Western civilization experience the poverty of a culture that no longer loves us. By now, we've been through all the statistics on the collapsing families of North America, divorce statistics, the numbers of children who are being raised in single home families, the persistent poverty that really shouldn't exist in a country that has as much wealth as we uh, do here in North America. I probably don't need to go back through those statistics, but what I want to say is that God actually has a solution. And where our government should and does make efforts to alleviate the symptoms of the collapse of our families, at the end of the day, it's a moral issue. And moral issues have to be resolved through the gospel. So the more our families fall apart, the closer our civilization comes to a total collapse. And so this lesson today will be a difficult one. I don't know of a text 
not, certainly not in Deuteronomy, but maybe in all the Bible, that is going to be as challenging for you as this one. You'll soon see why. But the thesis of the text, its whole proposition, is that I am to work to protect the integrity of my family. And more than that, each of us needs to be fighting for the integrity of all of our families. Now, as we look at the text, you're going to notice that there are six family statutes. Some of them will make a little more sense to you, but some of them probably won't make a lot of sense to you. Um, they're very difficult. They're difficult for me to preach. I, I'm just admitting uh, a couple of them are really difficult for me to preach. And I actually want to tell you, I considered skipping this text uh, because I, what I thought I might do, and I changed my mind, obviously, but what I thought I might do is suggest to you, hey, I'm going to skip this. It's a tough one, but I'm going to do it online and give you the URL and you can go listen to it online. The reason I wanted to do that is because I think for some of you women, it could be even more difficult. But when you listen to what the text is actually saying, you're going to see that God is preserving the integrity of our families for the sake of men and women. But as we approach a difficult text, let me point out two things that the New Testament teaches us about Deuteronomy and all of the Old Testament. First, I want to remind you, the marriage statutes of the book of Deuteronomy are in many cases concessions to the fallenness of humanity. In other words, this is not God saying, I want things to be this way. This is God saying, since you guys have broken the family, this is what we're going to have to do. It's really important to remember that. The second thing I want to make sure that you note is that the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, which we're studying today, is actually a school teacher to get us to Jesus, and it's only in Jesus that we get the full truth. Here's why that matters. The laws we're going to look at today are pointing towards a beautiful vision of the family, but they're pointing only in the first grade. When we listen to some of these laws, we're probably going to feel some pushback. Uh, one or two of you will feel some revulsion. You're going to, I'm just telling you. And that's actually a good thing. Because what it means is you have left the first grade behind. And you're now in graduate school of ethical, moral living. So the Old Testament is the first grade teacher. And I just want to make sure you know, if you're going to go to graduate school, you have to go through first grade. But when you get to graduate school, you can look back on first grade and say, I am so thankful I'm not in first grade anymore. And I'm thankful that those truths in first grade, as immature as they were, pointed me in the right direction. That's what Deuteronomy is about to do. It's about to point us in the right direction, but it's going to do it in Bronze Age structures. So let's start. We're going to pick up actually the last part of chapter 21 of the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to read mostly from the NIV, but in order not to prejudice a question that's coming down the way, I'm going to switch to the ESV here in just a few minutes. If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, I'm in Deuteronomy 21 and verse 22, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day. Because anyone who's hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Okay, already, I hope you're saying to yourself, wait, what? <laughs> you kill somebody and hang them on a pole and God's okay with that? Let me just say this, and I'm going to do this short because I want to get to the family stuff quickly. The point of the text is executions must be public. Now, you may still be appalled at that, but I remind you, 
private executions are open to all sorts of terrible, terrible abuse. Even today, the state of Tennessee allows for the execution of inmates for certain capital offenses. But it must be a public thing because what you don't want is a bunch of jailers in there doing it their way and nobody holds them accountable. So this is simply a concession. And what God says is when you do a public execution, don't leave the body hanging up overnight. I want to come back to that text, God willing, right at the end of the sermon. And I hope you see something amazing. Let's see. Okay, chapter 22. We get a, a, a short series of just beautiful little ethical principles here. If you see your fellow Israelites' ox or sheep straying, do not ignore it, but be sure to take it back to its owner. If they do not live near you or if you do not know who owns it, take it home with you and keep it until they come looking for it. Then give it back. Do the same. If you find their donkey or cloak or anything else that they've lost, do not ignore it. If you see a fellow Israelite's donkey or ox fallen on the road, do not ignore it. Help the owner get to its feet. These Short little uh, statues simply affirm what the Bible teaches over and over again, which is love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Do to your neighbor as you would have them do to you. Let's keep going. Now we're in verse 5. We're going to see a, a series starting at verse 5, a series of do not mix this with that. Watch, there are four different things that you're not supposed to mix. And I hope it's a little perplexing for you because that's probably part of the point. First, a woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear woman's clothing, for the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. Now, I want to pause for a moment, and I want to remind us this is an Old Testament statute. I'm going to help you with something. Listen, I'm going to help you. This text is not talking about transgenderism today. I'm helping you with that. Because if this text is talking about transgenderism today, so are the other texts you're about to listen to. But the principle, remember, the precept behind this still applies. Because in the New Testament, we're told that gender is a gift from God. It is a part of the natural structure of the created order. And by honoring gender, we complement the creation that God gave us. So the New Testament gives us what we need in order to affirm that gender is rooted in biology. It's a gift from God, and we need one another. This text seems to be paired with some others, as you'll soon see. If you come across a bird's nest beside the road, either in a tree or on the ground, and the mother is sitting on the young or on the eggs, do not take the mother with the young. You may take the young, but be sure to let the mother go so that it may go well with you and you may have a long life. Nobody on planet Earth today has any idea what this commandment is about. It's just there. Maybe it's about compassion. Maybe it's about preservation of species. Maybe it's a conservation type thing. We don't know. It has all those effects. But uh, the least we can say is it have to think about what you're doing when you have chicken and eggs. There you go. <laughs> Verse 8. When you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you may not bring guilt or bloodshed on your house if someone falls from it. It's simply a matter of loving your neighbor. Make sure you put a fence up on your second floor so people don't fall off. If you have a deck, put a fence on it. Now, here we get to the other three do not mixes. And this is why I suggest that, that you want to be careful how you use the first one. Do not plant two kinds of seed in your vineyard. If you do, only the, uh, excuse me, not only the crops you plant, but also the fruit in the vineyard will be defiled. Do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. And do not wear clothes made of wool and linen woven together. Four different things in this text that you're not supposed to mix. Men and women's clothing, seeds in your garden, animals in your plow, and fabrics in your clothes. Let me say again, we actually don't know why these commands are given. 
Many times Deuteronomy is summarizing the first four books that precede it in the Bible. And so many times you see one sentence in Deuteronomy and you can go to the rest of the Old Testament and it's expounded on and you can't understand it. This one is not expounded on anywhere else. But I think I know what's going on. Remember, the Old Testament is first grade. It's a school teacher to get you to Jesus. First graders need what? Object lessons. That's why when you were in first grade, your school teacher made you get a coffee can. Y'all probably did this in your physics class every, every week, Nick, would be my guess. A coffee can, and on there you write, I can, and it builds your self-esteem. I'm sure they do that at Central Magnet in their physics classes. I can. <laughs> You do that in first grade, it's an object lesson. Here's what I think's going on. I think that these are object lessons in keeping yourself pure. Think about it. Already, the Israelites have to eat kosher. At every meal, you have to make sure you're not violating kosher. Now, when you go out to plow the field, you have to make sure that you don't pair an ox and a donkey. When you put your clothes on, you can't put cotton on with polyester. And when you're sowing the seed, you can't mix two different kinds of seeds. I think all that's going on is God is teaching us how to live a pure life through an object lesson that applied to first graders, but not to you. Only the precept, the principle, the timeless eternal truth applies to you. So it's okay that you're wearing cotton and polyester, but let me tell you what's not okay. Having an impure heart. See, the purity principle still applies. As Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It's an object lesson. Now, one more before we get to the marriage. Of the, the, so we, the, I'm dealing with the, the mixed clothing of men and women. That's the first of six applicable statutes to marriage. We have five more, but this one first. Make tassels on the four corners of the cloak that you wear. So, if you ever go to the airports, especially the international airports, you'll see Orthodox Jews, and you'll always see they have the, the, uh, a very familiar dress, but they'll have the tassels. It's actually an undershirt that they wear under their shirt. And uh, they're actually quite expensive to get an Orthodox one. If all you had were the book of Deuteronomy, you wouldn't know why they had to wear the tassels. But we actually can look at Numbers chapter 15, and Numbers 15 tells us what the tassels are supposed to do. They're reminders to obey the law. That's what uh, Moses says here. He says, put tassels, by the way, the tassels always have a blue thread in them. That's in Numbers as well. I don't know if it's in this verse. It's in one of the next verses. That way you will remember the commands of the Lord that you may obey them. So the tassels, it's kind of like those... um, you know, beads that you'll see. Uh, so Muslims will have uh, counting beads, a prayer beads. Many Roman Catholics will have that, a, a set of prayer beads. And it's just, they just sort of tick it off and it's kind of a way of just keeping a rhythm in the course of a day, maybe a prayer in the course of a day. That's what the tassels do for Orthodox Jews. And God says, I, just, I want that reminder with you. Remember, f- from the standpoint of biblical revelation, we're still in the first grade with the book of Deuteronomy. And first graders need object lessons. And so that's what the tassels are intended to accomplish. Now we get to the marriage statutes. Let's start with this one. We have five statutes here. If a man takes a wife and after sleeping with her, dislikes her and slanders her and gives her a bad name saying, I married this woman, but when I approached her, I did not find proof of her virginity. 
Then the young woman's father and mother shall bring to the town elders of the gate proof that she was a virgin. Her father will say to the elders, I gave my daughter in marriage to this man, but he dislikes her. Now he slandered her and said, I did not find your daughter to be a virgin. But here's the proof of my daughter's virginity. By the way, I'm not going to go into this, but I put it in the notes. And I think most of you who are teenagers or older can understand what the proof would be. Then her parents shall display the cloth before the elders of the town and the elders shall take the man and punish him. They shall find him a hundred shekels of silver, which is actually an enormous amount of money in the ancient world, and give them to the young woman's father. I just want to pause because some of you are thinking how unfair that they would give it to the father and not the woman. Remember, if you give it to the woman, the man's going to steal it from the woman. I mean, it, it all gets mixed. To give it to the father is the same as depositing it into her account. The father will now take care of the daughter out of that money. So it doesn't sound as unfair in the ancient world as it might sound to you right now. Uh, she shall continue to be his wife. He must not divorce her as long as he lives. That is, he has to now provide for her and take care of her for the rest of her life. Then we have the second situation. If, however, the charge is true and no proof of the young woman's virginity can be found, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of the town shall stone her to death. She's done an outrageous thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. You must purge this evil from among you. The sin of the woman was lying about her virginity. That was the sin. Now, I want to say this. North America is so promiscuous that this text is incomprehensible to most of us. But I want you to know who changed. We did. It was our sinfulness and our promiscuity that makes a verse like this seem incomprehensible. Because it means that we have forgotten a fundamental truth. God gives us sexuality as a superglue to hold relationships together. And when we mess with superglue, we get ripped apart. So the text is intended to suggest that families need integrity. And if you mess around with the integrity of a family, you will destroy a civilization. And I'm going to bring that point back up in a minute, but I want to make sure you get it right now. See, North Americans, we think that if we just pass enough good policies, we will heal all of our social ills. That is not true. Our social ills need to be treated because they're symptoms of a deep and profound disease. But the deep and profound disease is sin. It's a moral failure that we're guilty of. And if we think that we can pass enough legislation to resolve the moral failures that we face, we are more deluded than the Canaanites were. And so what we want to understand with these texts is that every one of these is an effort on the part of God to say, you have to practice family integrity for your sake. If you don't, your civilization will collapse. And if we don't believe that in North America, we will experience it. Let's keep going. We have a few more to go. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. I just pause to say this. That it is very much worth noting that both the man and woman receives the death penalty for adultery, where in most civilizations in this day, only the woman would have been uh, given a death sentence. The Bible has a deep and profound admiration and respect and honor for women, even though it's expressed in Bronze Age language and it can be difficult for us to see, that's what's happening. All right, let's look at a few more. If a man happens to meet, a, uh, meet in a town, a virgin pledged to be married, this is the important thing here. So she's already betrothed. To be betrothed is bigger than to be engaged. 
um, it's similar but much bigger. So typically in the ancient world, a betrothal was something, it was like this. I'll, I'll use my son as an analogy. If you can imagine, when Jonathan was born, I partnered with one of you, a family, Julie and I, and we said, okay, we're going to raise Jonathan to be married to your daughter. We agree. We buy property together. We open a business together. Our families are now joined. And for his whole life, your daughter and my son are intended to be married. And then one day, my son starts to go out with some other girl. That's what's being envisioned in this text. So it's a little different than what we might have conceived. And here's how the Bible deals with that situation. If a man happens to do this in a town, he meets a woman who's already pledged and he sleeps with her, take both of them to the gate of the town and stone them. So this is tantamount to adultery. The young woman, because she was in the town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife. You must purge the evil from you. Now, before you feel the revulsion, which I think you would be right to feel, I'm telling you, these are hard texts. I don't feel good about the text, but I know what's happening. Before you feel it, remind yourself that an ancient city, a Bronze Age city, was so close and so tight, there's probably no way you can't know what everybody else is doing. In a Bronze Age city, you hear every sound, you see every sight, you smell everything there is to smell. This is actually a model of Beersheba. So this was actually the city of Beersheba from about the time of the Iron Age, right after the late Bronze Age. This is a model of what it looked like. So Moses is just saying, if this is in close quarters, you're going to know. And if you don't know, then there's probably cons- it was probably consensual. So we actually had uh, three people staying with us the last 10 days or so, my son and daughter-in-law. And uh, they brought a friend, a great guy who came with them from Oregon. And, you know, our house, we have a fine house. It's a nice house. It's uh, big enough for us. But I will say that for the last 10 days, there wasn't a single sound in our house that I didn't hear, a single sight I didn't see, and a single smell I didn't smell because we're all living right together. That's what's being envisioned in this text. When we get to the second part, if it happens in the open country, a man meets a woman who's betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. Do nothing to the woman. She's committed no sin, deserving death. This is the case like someone who attacks and murders a neighbor. For the man found the young woman out in the country. And though the betrothed woman screamed, no one was there to rescue her. So he's just saying there are some conditions where it was obviously consensual. There are some conditions where it wasn't. Now, what's the point of all this? Let's go back to our point. The point is that we must preserve the integrity of the family or every one of us suffers. We'll come back to that. Now, the next two verses I'm doing out of the ESV because I don't want to prejudice these verses. These are, in my opinion, the two toughest verses in the Bible. Here we go. If a man meets a virgin who's not betrothed, and so this is a woman who's not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver. He shall be, she shall be his wife because he's violated her, and he may not divorce her all his days. All right, let's stop right there. Let me tell you what it sounds like, and then I'm going to help you. It sounds as though a man has sexually assaulted a woman, and now she has to marry him as punishment. That's what it sounds like. That's not what's happening in the text. The first thing I want to make sure you know is that it's not clear what kind of relationship is being described. So the NIV uses a word I don't want to use that prejudices the question. In the original Hebrew language, all that's said is if a man puts his hand on a woman who is not engaged and they have relations, then he's got to pay out the family just as though they were married. 
But it may be sexual assault that's under consideration. In fact, I suspect it is, though I'm not sure that it is. The second thing I want to make sure you know is that this is Deuteronomy. It's a summary of the Torah. It's not the full Torah, which means that this is only a summary of the law. And what we discover in Exodus chapter 22 is the family can say, I don't want, to, I don't want my daughter married to that guy. And he still has to pay. This is the thing that throws so many of us off as we look at it. It's like, wait a minute, if he assaults a woman, he's just got to pay the dad a fee and then the woman has to get married to him. That's what it looks like. But that's not what the text is teaching. The text is actually teaching that if a man has relations with a woman, whether it's assault or not, he has to pay a fine and then he has to take care of her for the rest of his life. That's his penalty. We would put him in prison. If he were kin to me, if she were kin to me, we would do more than put him in prison. But to say to a man, you're going to pay alimony for the rest of your life was a pretty serious penalty for whatever happens in this text. And what I would remind you about this text is as difficult as it sounds, it's a protection for women. It's a deterrent for the safety of women. And it's a statement that men can't do this to women without being severely punished. Now we have one more statute, which is uh, another odd one for us. A man may not marry his father's wife. He must not dishonor his father's bed. We don't really know what would have provoked this, except that incest is forbidden in the Hebrew Scriptures. And maybe this is his mother. It could be a stepmother. We don't know. We know that in other Old Testament texts, it's listed all the different kinds of incest that are illegal in the Hebrew Scriptures. And here we only get one sentence. Now, let's stop. Because here's what we want to talk about for the rest of our time. The whole point of every one of these statutes is the same. If you undermine the family, civilization will collapse. And that's because families are the DNA, the building blocks of all civilization. Every single one of you is the product of one man and one woman coming together in an intimate relationship. You were born to be in that environment. When we start messing with that, we're going to pay. And we might be able to mess with one or two or a hundred or a thousand. But when we start having millions and millions of broken families, the weight of that social dysfunction will cause the whole roof to collapse. And so we want to protect the integrity of our families. And I want to make sure that we understand how much is at stake here. I'm just going to say it. This is the Christian position. The greatest poverty in America is the poverty of being unloved. The greatest injustice in America is the injustice of fatherless children. Every fatherless, every child whose father abandoned him or her, every Lisa Turkhurst who had, after she was sexually assaulted as a little girl, who had to hear her father say, I never wanted you anyway, and then walk off, that is the greatest injustice justice in the United States of America, and it happens not hundreds of times, not thousands of times. It's happened 25 million times in the last 15 years. 
It's the greatest injustice in America. The greatest source of social unrest in America is broken families. Go, if you go and if you were to interview every Antifa protester in Portland, Oregon today, I guarantee you 75% of them do not have a father. It's a rage. I hardly blame them. It's a rage against a world that said it's okay to abandon me as a child. It's a self-immolation. It's suicide. It's cultural suicide. And the greatest victim of America's family ethical system is and always will be our own children. This has been, this is Ben. Ben is one of three siblings. His other two siblings are step-siblings because his mother has had relations with three different men. She's never been married. Ben has a love-hate relationship with his step-siblings. He doesn't know who his father is. All he knows is that his mother curses the man who got her pregnant with Ben. Ben is passed back and forth between his mother and his grandmother because Ben's mother is an addict and she's in and out of jail. Ben grows up now in a world where he's never seen a commitment that someone actually kept. He grows up in a world in which he is told a thousand different ways that he's unlovable. It's a routine thing for for Ben to hear his mother screaming at her latest boyfriend who's living with him. He hears it all the time. It's not uncommon for him to hear doors slamming as people are storming out, throwing things at each other. This is how Ben grows up. He has intestinal issues already, poor Ben does, and he's not going to do well at school. And those of you who are teaching him at school are doing everything you can. God bless you to help this little boy, and you know you can't turn it around in spite of your best efforts. And as Ben grows up, he's finally going to take refuge in a closed bedroom behind an internet where he'll take turns watching porn and playing the most violent video games he can find. It's the only relief Ben gets. And as Ben turns into an older teenager, you can be sure that Ben will never get married because he's never seen a marriage. He will hate every teacher he has. He'll hate every principal he has. He hates law enforcement. When he goes on the internet, he flirts with the alt-right because they're so radical and it feels so good to be angry. Or maybe it's Antifa because they're angry and it feels so good to be angry at the man, finally. And I'm telling you, the policies that we pass are well-intentioned. I'm for them. I love my country. I'm a patriot. I love America. We can pass all the policies we want to deal with the symptoms of the problem we created. And we should. We should do these policies. I'm for it. But I just remind you, treating the symptom will never heal the disease. The disease is a moral disease. And the only solution is the gospel. Now, if you've got... Ten bands in your country, you've got ten poor suffering boys. I'm telling you, there are 25 million bands in the United States of America. 25 million. You teach in school, am I making that number up? 25 million bands. You tell me how a civilization can stand with that many people who are growing up to hate the world because nobody ever loved them. I'm just suggesting... That's why this text is in here. Because God wants us to know 
You destroy your families and you're going to destroy civilization. And you know who always suffers. It's always that boy sitting down there. It's always that child. The children are the victims of our sexual ethic. They're the victims of our tearing apart of our own families. So that's why the text is in here as Bronze Ages as it sounds. That's why it's here. Because God wants us to protect the integrity of our families. You know the very last two verses of the whole Old Testament. Look at this. The last two verses of the whole Old Testament are these. God says, I'm going to send Elijah. That's John the Baptist. And he will announce that there's a great and dreadful day coming. And what's he going to do? Oh, man, I'm getting choked up. I just recently had a conversation with a someone who's abandoned by parents and mother in and out of jail and so forth and I'm having the devil's time getting that out of my head and not being choked up and wanting to say to the country wake up look at what we're doing we're okay with this we're okay making 25 million kids like that we're okay with that while we debate how much money to give to this or that program we're okay with what we're doing Elijah is going to come and he's going to turn the heart. These are the last words of the Old Testament. Turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children of their parents. Or else I will strike the land with total destruction. It's a warning for us that God's taking it really seriously what we do with our families. Whether we take it seriously or not, he is. But here's the great news. We're the people of God. And the healing that America needs is the gospel. We've got the gospel. The gospel will teach these mothers. You don't have to have 18 boyfriends to be happy. It'll teach these fathers when you have a son, you stay there with him. You commit to that boy. You raise him up to know Jesus. It'll rescue people from their addictions. It'll teach us how to be strong and healthy and wholesome. It'll restore the values that make strong families and thus a strong nation. It's the gospel. That's the solution we have. I'm great with policies. I hope our government passes a bunch of them. If you're on some policy committee, I'm praying for you. God bless you. Thank you. You're treating great symptoms. But at the end of the day, the church has one and only one solution, the gospel, because it changes the souls of people. And that's what has to happen. We need a heart transplant. Not a band-aid. So I want to suggest, second, reclaim the sacredness of your own family. The Hebrew writer says this, marriage should be honored by all, marriage bed kept pure, God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Or to put it this way, Jesus says, look, look, you picked your mate, but when you picked them, God joined you together. And when God joins you together, he says, I don't want you to separate it. I didn't give you permission to separate it. And I just want to say, I did half your weddings. I was there, remember? I remember when you said, I take thee to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death separates us. And I give myself only to you. I heard you say that. It was a vow. It was an oath. You made a covenant. And marriage is about learning how to be consistent with that covenant. I have her permission to share this. Julie and I have had a good marriage, and there have been times that it's not been so good. And if we weren't married, I'm not sure we'd have made it. Marriage was the covenant we made with each other to figure out how to make it. We share, we have exactly the same values, but we process the world about as differently as two humans can. Is that fair to say? Very different way of processing the world. And even when we know the other one is sharing our values, it can be difficult. 
because the way we process the world is so different. Marriage is the covenant we made that said, you know, we're together. We're in this for life. Restore the sense of sacredness that marriage deserves. Your marriage deserves a sense of sacredness. And deal with your selfishness because let's be honest, it's selfishness that's creating so many problems. So many North Americans enter into marriage saying, well, the reason I'm getting married is to make me happy. I know I've said this enough that I probably don't have to say it again, but even God hadn't made you happy. What makes you think a man can? Don't put that burden on somebody else. And I'm to remind you the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is selfishness. Hate, in some odd sense, hate is a form of love. Have you ever thought about that? In some odd sense, if you're a Democrat, you hated Donald Trump. You know why? Because you love your country and you felt like he was tearing it up. In an odd sense, hate is an expression of love. In an odd sense, selfishness is never an expression of love. We have to ask the hard question. Am I in this marriage because of what I'm going to get out of it? Or is this marriage my ministry to someone that I know God loves? So I'm just suggesting don't measure everything by how it makes you feel. And then I'm going to end with this. In fact, I'm going to end with this so quickly you won't even know what happened. <laughs> this was really good stuff. Would have changed your life. But my clock is in negative numbers right now. Let me just say this. Treat your family as a ministry. Here's, here's a good way to think of it. If I am a husband, it's a ministry. I have a ministry here. My ministry to my wife is this. I'm supposed to love her, to nurture her, and to care for her. I'm supposed to do that whether I want to or not. It's a ministry. Ministry is not what I do on Friday night when I serve at the homeless shelter. Ministry is every day. It's everything I do. If you're a woman and you're married to a man, you have a job. Honor and respect your husband. That's it. That's your ministry. You do it. You don't ask the question, but does he deserve it? Or how does it make me feel? Quit. Don't ask that question so often. Can you just ask it maybe once a month? And just sometimes ask the question, what does God want me to do? If you're parents, train your kids to be like Jesus. If your children obey and honor your parents, it's not like a good idea. It's a commandment from God. That's our ministry. And I want to go back to it. Guys, do we have to really go through all the statistics about the social ills that are caused by the collapse of the human family? Or do we not already know that? And do we not realize that the ultimate solution is not for the church to get wrapped up in policy issues? I, I want to say again, let me say it very clearly. You Christians need to be involved in policy issues. When we, we have, again, we have all sorts of people here who work for government. We're for you. We pray for you. We're, I'm so glad you're involved. I want... I want our brothers and sisters involved. But as an institution, as the church, we neither have the mandate nor the competence to get involved in policy issues. You really think that if you got all the elders and the staff in a room that we could come up with a really good policy on wearing masks in the community that we live in? The answer is no, we could. Now, we have to do that for the church, but we're going to let the government handle what its business. We're not going to get in that policy. Because if we get involved in policy, you know what we're not doing? We're not doing the gospel. That's what we have. That's what we bring to the table. We bring the gospel to the table. We bring the heart transplant the world needs. Let the world bring the band-aids. We bring the heart. We bring the gospel. So I'm going to go back to the last verses of chapter 21. Where remember this one? If anyone is hung on a pole, he's under God's curse. Remember that? Are you aware that that verse quoted in the New Testament? 
In Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. You see, Jesus died for us to set us free. And that means now we, the bearers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, have the answer the world searches for. We stand for, we protect, and we defend and promote families as a building block of civilization on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we want to pray for you. You can go online and click that prayer button or here at the campus. You can go back to the back. We'll have people back there to pray for you. Guys, let's take a stand for our families. The world desperately needs to see people who get it right, take the right stand, and who promote the good news of Jesus Christ. If we can help you with that, stand up, tell us how, let's sing.